We're continuing on with the eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series. If you look at Roman numeral on your outline, the eight essential elements, outline and overview, you have the eight titles. And so today we're moving on to chapter three, the Ten Commandments. And the outline you have in front of you has part A and a brief preview of part B. Today will be part A. Now, that uh, we're going to start with talking about where the Ten Commandments are contained in the Bible, and that they're also called the Law and the Law of Moses and the Decalogue. And the first place they're contained in the Bible is Exodus chapter 21 through 17. So I've asked Beth to read it onto the record uh, just for so we, you can get compare two translations at once. Your outline has New American Standard Bible, and she's going to read it from the New King James Version. And that way you can be comparing two translations for any slight uh, nuances of enrichment. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath day of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is in w within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Beth. All right, let's get going. So uh, just to, I'm going to put this uh, teaching element three, the Ten Commandments, in just a little bit of context. The whole series, the words are chosen uh, carefully. You know that we have another series of teachings called the Seven Missing Elements of the American Gospel. And modern gospel, especially after the Civil War, is increasingly a reductionist gospel that has less and less of the full biblical elements that, that people need to hear. Uh, and it also has the tendency to be grace or performance-based instead of grace-based, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so many missing elements. The, the, you know, in the New Testament, you cannot find a presentation of the gospel that does not uh, specifically highlight chapters in the historical narrative of Israel because Jesus was the new Israel of God and the church is the new Israel of God. And the apostles interpreted the Old Testament scriptures as everything in them important 
to foreshadow and help us understand the richness of Christ. And without all the Old Testament uh, being interpreted in such a way that it reveals Christ to us, uh, we, we can't possibly begin to even scratch the surface of the nuances and, and the glories of knowing our Lord and Savior. And so that's one. There's no New Testament presentations that don't warn of judgment. It has become very fashionable today to, to uh, denigrate and make fun of fire and brimstone pre pre preachers or anyone who has any warnings of judgment. The problem is the Bible has a lot to say about the wrath of God. It's become very fashionable, uh, both in the modern versions of Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity, to not, to not believe there's a wrath of God. The problem is there's no other way to interpret the words in the Old Testament and the New Testament for wrath. And so you just have to kind of pull pages out of your Bible if you want to fit into, you know, the modern versions of Christianity. So we, uh, you know, we cannot do that. So... Um, when we're doing this series, we're looking at eight particular subjects. Uh, we're going to be on them one to four weeks as a rule. We're looking, and I'm going to try to at least give you one takeaway for each subject about why it's essential that without it, the gospel crumbles completely. It's a little bit like building a house, and you say, well, we'll build the house, but we're going to just give up a foundation and we won't use any way to fasten the two by fours and the structural, <laughs> we'll just set them there. <laughs> well, it wouldn't take long for that house to fall down. Now, maybe if you held the two by fours in place while you drywalled and so forth, they might hold in place for a little while, uh, but not very long. And that's really what we've experienced since the Civil War in American Christianity. The whole thing is collapsing incredibly. Uh, current events are constantly helping us see uh, how much it's collapsing. And this is not a sign of the end times has become popular to believe. This is the signs that God needs to find a people that will that will take seriously enough study the, the need for the power of the Holy Spirit, the need for covenant church community membership, uh, and every other aspect of what God needs to restore. So that's kind of the overview of why we're doing this series is to help you have a better handle on the gospel, both for your own life and because the purpose of Ephesians 4, 11, uh, through 17, the purpose of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers is to equip the saints, that would be you, for the work of ministry. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. You are being called by Jesus to follow him and to learn how to fish. And I can tell you, there's a, there's a high premium in the Bible on fishing well versus fishing poorly. I always like to tell about how I never fished much. I've, I've been fishing probably less than 10 times in my life. And uh, a really good fisherman in the, in the campus ministry in Bowling Green named John Chipotello took me out, and he was fishing a particular kind of fishing where you snag the fish. And he kept trying to teach me how to feel when the fish was close to the thing and, and snag it on and so forth. And the truth is I couldn't get it. Now, I'm not sure because I didn't test it out, but in general, I would guess that if I was willing to work at snagging and work at snagging and work at snagging, that eventually I might've got it. He was certainly good at it and he'd had a lot more practice. And so it does matter uh, if we are equipped 
and practiced and trained how to lead people to Christ, how to make disciples. Uh, Many of us have people in our lives that, frankly, we're not loving very well because we're not knowing how to influence them for Christ. So that's a little bit about what this series is about. So the the takeaway from God, the essential attributes of God, was only one week, but we have a very man-centered Christianity in our culture, and we have a very reductionist view of God. One of the things that anyone who comes out of somewhat of an evangelical background that you'll always have to deal with is there's no vision of God's sovereignty. So I remember John Gray, when I first met him, talking about how he had already graduated from Bible college, and he uh, was supposed to know the Bible or something about God by then. You know, he had a bachelor's degree in Bible study from Alaska Bible College. And then a pastor uh, that he knew before me introduced him to the concept of the sovereignty of God. And he was like, wow, this has revolutionized my thinking about the whole Bible. But how could the God of the Bible be less than sovereign and still be God? Yet the God of, of biblical Christians today is not in control. He's biting his fingernails about the devil. And the best-selling books are about how Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. I just want you to know, God is alive and well on planet Earth, and Satan's not doing well, nor has he been, since Jesus began to crush him in the wilderness and crush him by his sinless life and crush him by casting out demons and crush him by his attesting miracles and crush him by defeating death in his resurrection, and crush him by ascending into at the Father's right hand and being granted a coronation of all uh, power and authority in, in heaven and earth, and, have, and the Holy Spirit being poured upon him, and that Holy Spirit being poured into the earth, which is still pouring, which is the anointing oil of the king. And it means he's in charge of everything that ever happened in your life. When you fall down the steps, just thank God that chapter's over with. <laughs> and, and actually, you also need to have the dual standard of believing he cared. You need to start thanking him. I thank you that I fell down the steps. What are you trying to teach me in that? <laughs> well, maybe don't wear socks and, and down the steps or turn on a light at night or, or uh, don't try to do the steps the way Johnny Pellegrino would do them when you're not nine anymore and you're actually 58. <laughs> you know, uh, take the steps a little more slow. The, he might, the Lord is in control of why you fell down the steps. And he had a loving purpose for it. Maybe he wants to, to get put some iron in your soul that will help you liberate others. So that was chapter one. Chapter two, we looked at the whole doctrine of sin. One of the things I often tell people is you need to start with Romans, uh, read it a few times, read the Ten Commandments, because you just don't have much of an understanding of sin. If you've grown up in American churches today, or, and of course we've exported the the. American Christianity to the world. So if really, if you've grown up in the church today, you basically don't see God as very holy and you don't see yourself as very unholy. You don't see that your motives are twisted, that every thought and intention of your heart, as Genesis 6 says, is evil all the time. (laughs) 
and you're, you have become, like any sinful person, very good at seeing other people's sin and national sin and the Democrats' sin and the Republicans' sin and the, the news media's sin and, and your boss's sin and co- the corporate world's sin. Everybody's sin but you. <laughs> Every fallen man can understand the, the, uh, the, ramif- the fallenness in others although they generally explain it away because they don't want to admit that we have a constitutional problem with sin. I need a deliverer. I need a rescuer. And so uh, coming to understand the value of man is so important, uh, a la some of the you know, ways our culture's continuing, continuing to throw off its Judeo-Christian heritage and continuing to devalue everyone, uh, in all human life and so forth. Uh, and, but you also need to s- see that Christ came to save sinners. If you don't see yourself as enough of a sinner, you won't see your Jesus at all. If you say that you're basically a pretty good person and you think God got a good deal when he called you, have <laughs> uh, mercy on us. So today we want to look at, begin to look at the Ten Commandments. And the big overview of that is simply this. Since the Civil War, an idea was born that John may touch on a little bit in his sermon. I got a rare, rare occasion, I got a preview of John's sermon, uh, which we don't normally ever compare notes, just too busy. But um, since the Civil War, a concept has come along called antinomianism. And it has displaced the idea of the early Christians and the, and the Reformation called theonomy. And that is, is that God's law is still important. And that even if you are saved by grace, you need the law. We need the law. Society needs the law. There was a time when American Christians understood that so much that the Ten Commandments was on, publicly displayed in practically every venue of public life. The courts, every courtroom in America had the Ten Commandments. Schoolrooms, every schoolroom in America had the Ten Commandments. Every public building had the Ten Commandments displayed. Every church had the Ten Commandments. Kids grew up memorizing the Ten Commandments for centuries. In fact, if you know anything about Bloody Mary, Queen of England, who had said she she was so anti or anti-Protestant that she made the streets of London run with the blood of Protestants, that's how they would determine if if the family was Protestant or not. They would arrest the dad and the in and, and the family, and they would gag him so he couldn't speak. And they would ask his children to recite the Ten Commandments. And if the kid recited them in Latin, they knew the parents had Catholic sentiments. And if the kid recited them in English, they knew the family had Protestant sentiments. And so they would chop the dad's head off in front of his wife and kids. Uh, Because they dared to believe that people ought to be able to know the Bible in their own language. I'm sorry, but when I think about stuff like that, it just gets me so upset that I have to beg and plead and beg and plead Christians all the time to know their Bibles. Thousands of people died for the idea that you should be able to read your Bible yourself. 
and it was the greatest advancement in modern history that the that the that the translating of the bible into better greek versions that came from the east at the fall of constantinople and that the greek versions came gave luther his original lutheran bible and wycliffe the first english bible and john huss the first czechoslovakian bible and so forth and these men died for these things luther didn't but he lived for them and uh and that happened to coincide in the sovereignty of God with the printing press. And yet today we have so many Bible tools available on our smartphones, our laptops. We can, you know, read it. I read four Bibles in, in columns next to each other all the time and, uh, can, and can just click over here to look up any Greek word or Hebrew word I want, click over another place to, to, to read commentaries. We have more Bible tools than anyone has ever had and better translations thereof. Well, I digress. Back to the Ten Commandments. Antinomianism uh, is the idea that because you're under grace, the law is not true or, or powerful or in force or important anymore. And because of that idea, the Christian church, at the time the courts took um, took uh, the Ten Commandments out of the schools, 88% of American people claimed they were uh, Bible-believing Christians. Now, we're less than 50% today uh, that would claim that, and probably less than 50% of those who claim it that have any reality behind it. But nevertheless, 88% of, of, of American Christians claimed they were Bible-believing Christians, yet didn't uh, have an uprising over the Ten Commandments being banished from public display. Nor did they know what the societal ramifications would be. Well, hopefully by the end of my four weeks or so on the Ten Commandments, you'll know. Part of how we got into this mess. So let's get into them. Uh, Beth graciously read us the first version and the first thing I want to deal with today is where to find the Ten Commandments in your Bible. Uh, you need to know, as you read your Bible, that the, that the um, Ten Commandments are sometimes called the law, and sometimes they're called the law of Moses. And if you're reading theology books, uh, you will sometimes see the word decalogue, which is just Greek for ten words or ten commandments. Now, um, so that's one thing you want to understand. Now, uh, so the first place, of course, is where Lee, um, Beth read from, uh, Exodus 20. Deuteronomy chapter 5, 1 through 21, contains the same ones word for word. Now, that's actually how Deuteronomy got to know, be, know its name. If you study in the Old Testament, one of the things you can ascertained from any study Bible or Bible dictionary or even Bibles that just have a brief introduction to the books and so forth is that most of the books of the Old Testament had kind of a Hebrew name. And then after Alexander the Great conquered Palestine, I believe around 333 BC, give or take a couple of years, I always have a hard time remembering exact dates. After that, he was so impressed with the Jewish leaders showing him from the book of Daniel where it clearly stated he was coming, 
and, and, and meeting him with a delegation before he got to Israel and saying, we see, look here, our prophets foretold us uh, o- over uh, 200, 300 years ago that you're coming. Welcome. Uh, he was so impressed by this, the, the scholarship and the scribery that he, re, that he resettled many of the scribes and scholars of, of Israel in his two intellectual cities, Alexandria and Egypt, and what's today called Istanbul, was Constantinople back then. And he, uh, and because he wanted them to intermix with the other academics and the other intellectuals, kind of like a modern version of a university is part, part of the fact that he was mentored and raised um, and tutored personally by Aristotle. And so as part of his vision for what's called Panhellenism, a one world kind of government, and he wanted the Judeo-Christian piece of it to be part of it. And uh, I'm not Christian yet at that time, but, uh, and, um, during that time, uh, therefore, more and more Jews spoke Greek because they had already begun to be dispersed in, throughout the, the, what became the Greek empires. Uh, in, in, of course, the Babylonian captivity of the northern kingdom in 722, which is the first diaspora, it's called, or dispersion. In 586 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah was dispersed and uh, became assimilated by Assyria. And, of course, then the Medes took over the Assyrians, and then the Persians took over them, and and, uh, you know, the, the people of God were spread through all these nations progressively. And people don't realize that the, the, in the times of Ezra and Nehemiah, Esther, uh, of course, um, Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi, the post-exile books, that only a very, very small percentage, as is always the case, said, we need to see God restore everything to his people. Let's go back to Jerusalem. Let's go back to Zion. Let's rebuild the city of God. Even in the church history, there's always just a remnant of people that see, let's restore the whole thing. And those people are given special eyes to see the bigger pictures. So anyway, during that time of exile, there became a translation called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint was a a Greek version of the old, what we call the Old Testament, what the the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, important to understand that both Jesus and the apostles quote sometimes from the Hebrew Masoretic text, and sometimes they quote from the Septuagint, and they quote with from them freely, all the time, both ways, without ever uh, discriminating between one over the other, as if they're both the authoritative Word of God. Uh, that's a long introduction to just say that the Hebrew names for the books are different than what the Septuagint began to give them a Greek word. So Genesis is the word for birth in in uh, in uh, Greek, and the Exodus, the departure. That's important because when Jesus is talking to the tw- first, begins to reveal to the the twelve that he's going to be. Um, uh, arrested and crucified and so forth. It's, it, the Greek is, he began to talk about his departure, his exodus. He, he's, self, he's purposely fulfilling the exodus of Israel. He is the Passover lamb. He is the new Moses. He is the Joshua and so forth. Okay, so that's how you read your Bible. Um, so that, you know, numbers, it got the name from uh, the fact that uh, in Numbers 1 and Numbers, what is it, 26, I think. Uh, you can look it up, 23, whatever. God numbers the people. 
And it's interesting that over 38 and a half, uh, 38 years, 38 and a half years in the desert, because of all of Israel's rebellion and the judgments against them, the people of Israel are 1,800 less people a generation later, when normally in those times most people would triple in one generation. Some of the tribes, I, Roy actually gave me a little correction at breakfast this week. We were talking about that, and he was talking about how he had noticed that m- many of the tribes had grown, and I'd always assumed because they were smaller that they kind of all shrunk, but actually many of the tribes did grow, and many of them shrunk considerably. Uh, the biggest swings were 20,000 in either direction. But so, um, you know, anyway, that's so Deuteronomy, long introduction just to say it just, Namas is law, Deuteros is two. Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. And one thing you need to understand is the second giving of the law is both a repeating of the law verbatim in Deuteronomy chapter 5, 1 through 21, and as importantly, not less importantly, case laws to help you understand what the law means. So let's get into that. So the second place you can find the law in the Bible is the case laws. Unfortunately, very unfortunately, most English translations mistranslate this as ordinances or statutes. So when you're reading Psalm 119 and I love your statutes, your ordinances, substitute, cross it out, and write case laws. I love your law. It's my meditation all the day, the psalmist said, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Do you love the law of God? Do you even know it? Most Christians today, they actually just did a whole study on this. I read a lot of interesting articles this week because of all the current events, one of which was how uh, very, very, very few Christians can even quote the Ten Commandments anymore. I hope to God there's no one sitting in, in the, listening to my voice that cannot recite the Ten Commandments, at least in their briefer forms. Lots of people would advocate you should be able to do the whole chapter word for word. Now, let's go through this idea. I hope you know what case laws are. Anyone who studies laws knows what case laws are. There was a time in our country when there was the Puritan and Reform consensus of New England and so forth, when jurors would sit in the jury box with their Bibles trying to discern what case laws of the Bible best fit this case. Just a few years ago, a, a Supreme Court, uh, well, a higher court judge and the federal judge on a higher circuit levels threw out a case because someone had actually referred to their Bible in the jury's deliberations. And he said, the fact that this person raised the idea of, re, of the Bible is a violation of church and state and he threw the case out, called him, declared a mistrial. Believe me, that's not what any of the founding fathers had in mind, nor anybody uh, in any kind of position of, of knowledge or power, even through probably the 1950s in this country. Now, case laws, let's give you some examples. Here's two from the Old Testament on the fourth and the seventh commandment. The fourth commandment is in Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath. Hebrew Shabbat or Yom HaShabbat, uh, day to keep it holy. Now, Shabbat 
it's important you kind of understand that we kind of have religiousized Sabbath. So when you say remember the Sabbath, what we don't know what we mean. We think mean maybe we should see fireworks or maybe uh, I don't know. We should watch football. But what we we are to remember all the the creative works and redemptive works of God throughout all history. We're to remember. Do this in remembrance of him and proclaim the Lord's life, death, burial, resurrection, sinless life, shed blood, uh, and so forth until he comes. We're to remember in such a way that we reinvigorate uh, ourselves with the presence of peace and of God, and, of, and we're refreshed in the things of God, and we enter that feeling, uh, that state of being in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, where we say, like the, like the original creation, it is finished after six days. Like Jesus on the cross, it is finished. And like any understanding of anything in the Bible, God's eternal decree is surely coming to pass. And it is well with my soul. Everything is good. When you begin to know the Lord, you'll eventually get to the point where no one... if. I, I have this kind of weird habit where I go, How is, how's it going? Well, for a Christian, it's always going well. You just may not know that yet. Uh, so entering the, the Sabbath day. Now, this doesn't just mean uh, that, you know, the Christians uh, reassigned the Sabbath to the Lord's day, the first day of the week, because Christ rose on the first day of the week, and it's the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth and the new creation. There's been some modern semi-cults like the Seventh-day Adventists that are kind of part Christian, part cult, that have tried to return the Sabbath to uh, to Saturdays and so forth very wrongly and misinformed. However, uh the, the Lord's Day was celebrated by the early Christians because it's the beginnings of the new heavens and the new earth, and it surely has arrived. And the kingdom of God is in our midst. Now, that means that all the purposes of Sabbath for the Old Testament have been fulfilled in Christ, and when we enter into Christ moment by moment, hour by hour, we always enter that rest as Hebrews 3 and 4 talks about, we, there yet remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, which you can experience at any time, any place, anywhere. Leviticus 23, 1 through 44 is a, is a whole chapter of case laws about what it means to keep the Sabbath sanctified, separated to God. So then the Lord spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as a holy vocation, convocations, uh, that is, assembly, community, my appointed times are these, Sabbath. He then go, talks about the Sabbath. Then he talks about Passover. Then uh, two weeks after Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, some people would lump, lump those to get together. The Feast of first fruits, which some people would lump with Pentecost, which means the 50 days. Greek word, or the, uh, the Feast of Harvest, and, and part of it is the, the whole thing of gleaning. But Pentecost is the celebration of when Moses came down from the mountain. After God made covenant with Israel in Exodus 19, Moses received the law. And Pentecost is a celebration of when he came down with the commandments 
Just like, and there's no, there was no accident that Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit into the church on Pentecost because it's the writing of getting baptized in the Spirit is the writing of God's law in your heart and your mind so that you become empowered to be a fulfiller of the law. So you hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so by grace, you can live that righteousness so that your righteousness can exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes. And you can be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's what Pentecost is about. And uh, going on the day of atonement, also known as Yom Kippur. Yom, by the way, Yom Shabbat and Yom Kippur is, um, Yom is day in Hebrew. Um, uh, uh, of course, the Day of Atonement starts with Rosh Hashanah in modern times, and it's two weeks before the Day of Atonement. And they're called to the Jewish people, like we have, very similar to our Lent in a lot of ways. Um, that They're called the High Holy Days in modern times. Uh, the stuff in brackets is more the modern names for them. Uh, then the Feast of Booths. Etc. Etc. And then he ends the chapter. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. That's what it means to keep the Sabbath holy. When when the early church did the Christian calendar and began to celebrate the different events of Jesus' life, like his birth, etc., his baptism, his whatever, all the way through to his to the Holy Week of uh, his descent on Jerusalem and riding the donkey and, and so forth, and, and that whole Holy Week, which is covered from John chapter 13 through 21. Um, the early church just didn't birth these ideas out of nowhere. They birthed them because of their biblical hermeneutic that all of the New Testament is saying, go read your Old Testament and figure out how Christ is revealed on every page, and then you will know the Lord. And so, um, you know, uh, that, that's where the whole concept of the church calendar came from because God, among many reasons to, to celebrate these things, was to teach your children what it meant every time. I grew up in a liturgical tradition that uh, I somewhat overreacted against when I first became a Christian because I was never taught what any of it meant. I just thought it was some dead religious forms that people did because I don't know why, because their parents and their parents and their parents did it. And it was just filled with hypocrisy. I didn't know it was pregnant with the, the very word of God itself if you teach your children what it, you know, teach them the historical reasons for the resurrection and the implications thereof, and and what happened at the the, the Pentecost is the writing of your the law on your heart, and all these things. Well, I'm not going to get through all of this today, but let's keep getting as far as we can. So that's just an example from the Old Testament of a whole chapter of case laws about one of the Ten Commandments. Let's get into another one that's quite in the news. Going to try not to steal John's thunder today, but. Uh, might as well share a few verses that will save him some time, hopefully. You, Exodus twenty fourteen. you shall not commit adultery. By the way, some of these offenses were considered capital offenses because from God's point of view, it's murder of the family. 
That's why the second group of commandments start with thou shall not commit murder because the rest of them are all forms of murder. Stealing is murder. Coveting is murder. It's devaluing the other person. You're saying, I should have, it's entitlement. It's, 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 it's modern culture. <laughs> it's, uh, it's murder. So let's, you shall not commit adultery. Leviticus 18, the whole chapter is definitions of adultery and what that means. We've come to narrow the definition to being when a, when a heterosexual married couple uh, cheats uh, outside the, the bonds of fidelity with someone else. It's way more than that. And it's murder of the family and it's murder of society. As Let's read a few excerpts. Read the whole chapter for yourself. But then, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. Man, the church needs to hear just those lines right there. That is their case laws. You are, you are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God, so you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Many of the commandments, honor your father and mother, this, give a promise that you may live long and dwell in the land. He's basically saying that if an individual or a society does not do these things, they will die. The, the society will crumble. And I don't want to get ahead of John, but if you know what the George Santanena, a famous uh, sla philosopher slash historian, said, uh, those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it. Let me just tell you, there are no historical examples of a culture that was rampantly in favor of homosexuality that didn't collapse quickly. So he goes on to say, these are my judgments by which a man shall live if he does them. I am the Lord. Then this chapter and others have prohibitions for forbidding incest and all kinds of definitions of what incest is. Like, you know, some of the cultures, well, if, if, if a guy was married to someone who wasn't the kid's mother, actual biological mother, then he would, like, marry her later and, and all kind of nonsense. Some of the first inner city people we actually helped years ago, they, there was a situation where, you know, this woman had a couple daughters, and the daughters actually uh, lived with these guys who were also having sex with the mother. And, and I was like, oh, my, you know, it was my rude awakening to what we're up against now. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, Paul, even Paul says there's a, you know, he tells the Corinthians that someone is, uh, committing a, adultery or immorality in a way that not even the Gentiles go that far. Somebody's having sex with his father's mother and pr probably justifying it because it wasn't his biological mother. Incest is, they, they say, some people believe as high as one out of three kids are being sexually molested as they're growing up today. You know, the, the culture of pornography has ramifications that work its way through all culture. Uh, adultery, Moloch worship, 
Leviticus 23 specifically uh, is against Moloch worship, and Moloch worship was sacrificing your children to the gods. That is, it's abortion. Moloch worship is abortion. Bestiality, fornication, homosexuality, rape, sexual trafficking. All these things are spoken against in as case laws throughout the Old Testament, especially in this particular chapter. And they're warning that a society that, that, that endorses these things cannot sustain itself. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. That doesn't sound like cultural relativity to me. Isaiah 48, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. It's Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent or change his viewpoints. He has said, and, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? The Lord is forever. All biblical theology comes out of the attributes of God, starting with the Trinity, but it includes his holiness. So anything that's not interpreting Scripture out of, the, uh, out of relationship to God is the, the Scripture, it came out of God. He existed before the Scripture. Uh, well, in a sense, they're eternal. Like he, all things are always now and present to him. But anyway, uh, <laughs> the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart is the point I'm trying to make. Uh, so those, you can now, hopefully, armed with that, you can get so much more out of your Old Testament. I, I did a whole series at Christmas time about how to get more out of your Old Testament with the with typology and and all that, and I will be getting back to the Kingdom of God series, and we're actually up to the point where I'm going to start talking about case laws, uh, and I'll get back to that in, once the right state students are back. Um, but now you got, you know, now I've tipped my hand. Read the Old Testament and look for the case laws that define what the Ten Commandments mean in practicality. Well, I'm going to try to get into one more point, and we can probably get halfway through this. Three case laws in the New Testament. Um, the sixth and seventh commandment. Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. Jesus establishes this law by grace when he says, do not be even angry. You got an anger management problem? I came to set you free from that. You were already condemned. He didn't come to bring condemnation. He came to bring deliverance. And we're to proclaim repentance, freedom, confession of sin, and the acquiring of grace. Walking in the light will set you free, and God can deliver you from your anger management problems. Ask me how I know. It sounded like a New Yorker there for a minute. Ask me how I know. Um, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Where did they hear that? From Exodus 20:13. But I tell you, everyone you know, one of the deceptions we fall into is like, oh, I'm not one of the everyone. Yes, you are. <laughs> everyone. Everyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Now, that ought to scare the hell out of you a little bit. You ought to memorize just that phrase. And I really do mean scare the hell out of you. Jesus is trying to get the hell out of you. <laughs> That's the gospel. He came to set the captives free. He has power to get the hell out of you. 
Everyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever, you're, whoever, not someone else, says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says you moron will be subject to hellfire. I use the Holman Christian Standard Version there because the word raka, which uh, means airhead. <laughs> Have you ever said these people are stupid? You better repent. Wow. Do you ever say, I have this stupid boss, these stupid people? That, oh, hello? What? Who? How high and mighty are you? Humble yourself. Uh, boy, I'm past my time. I'll just pick it up here. I'm going to segue ahead to point C is going to be some summaries of the law. And I want you to see uh, the, the two that I use there are full of small caps and caps, depending on where I cut and paste them from. They're either caps or small caps, but I, that's one reason I like the New American Standard. Every Bible has a way of alerting you to the fact that what you're reading is a quote from the Old Testament. English Standard Version and New King James Version, the only other two Bibles you should really have as your main Bibles. Those three are by far the best three Bibles uh, available in English. New American Standard, English Standard Version, and New King James Version. But the New American Standard has them in caps or small caps, and the ESV and the New King James have it in italics. I think it's easier to miss the italics myself, especially since uh, the New King James uses oblique to mean something else, and oblique and italics aren't that, for us old people, aren't that different. But uh, in any case, look at how many quotes from the Old Testament are there. Because these summaries of the law start with God saying through Moses that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And Jesus quotes Moses and adds all your mind. Uh, kind of adds a Septuagint twist on it. So we'll look at that. Uh, we're going to look at Jesus on the on the the purpose and the in the efficacy and the, and the importance of the. Uh, Ten Commandments, and we're going to look at Paul on how the Ten Commandments are our tutor to lead us to Christ. The reason there's a satanic attack against the Ten Commandments and always will be to get them out of culture is because the Ten Commandments are of such a blessing to, to God. The Ten Commandments will help you through, see through the deceitfulness of sin and see your need for Christ. Amen.